This is a power pack show on VA Did You Knows. Like, did you know that the VA actually offers respite care to family caregivers? That home care is available and home health aids and homemaker programs. There's also a ton of medical equipment that you can get. So stay tuned. This is a show you're going to want to listen in on. So this is a show you're going to want to listen into if you're a caregiver of a U.S. military veteran. There's a lot more in store. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional, and financial strain does not have to be your M.O., Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, it's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And today I have a very special show. Honestly, I have to tell you, this was like walking through a maze blindfolded, trying to find the right guys to talk to here from the VA, two people here from the VA who are giving us some insights, both on the healthcare opportunities or support that we can bring forward to our parents or a spouse who has served in the military here in the United States, as well as some of the pension programs that we didn't even know from my own dad until he moved to Florida. And I think like all his buddies are saying, what do you mean you're not getting a pension? So we learned, or he learned the, the, the hard way or the long way. My first guest is Dr. Scotty Hartromf. He's the Executive Director, Office of Geriatrics and Extended Care for the Veterans Department, Department of Veteran Affairs. He is a Principal Advisor, also a Deputy Assistant Under Secretary of Health for Clinical Operations under the Secretary of Health and the Overall Health Administration Services and issues related to policy, operations, oversight, quality of care for the aging, and chronically ill veterans of all ages. He is also served our country as well. So thank you. I'm going to call you Dr. Scotty, if that's all right. That's fine. And our other guest is Kevin Friel, who is Deputy Director of Pension and Fiduciary Services at the Department of Veteran Affairs, where he oversees the administering of pensions, dependency, and indemnity compensation programs. Interestingly enough, in doing some research for this, I also learned that the VA, or the the Veterans Health Department, is the largest healthcare service provider in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen. A silence, I guess I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) When in doubt, keep your mouth shut. So I'm going to back up a little bit because I got interested in the VA predominantly because some of the things that my own dad went through and then questions that family members and others had had over time. And I, I know that the labyrinth or the the maze of working through the VA just in finding you guys who could help me with the show. But even the veterans out there, predominantly those who have served and are now older that we're taking care of, they don't even know necessarily what's available to them. So can we start, first of all, with you, Kevin, just talking a little bit about some of the the pension or financial opportunities that our parents or a spouse might have that we don't even know about. Sure. Can you give me sort of a, a, an insight? Well, I mean, one of the things actually when I found going through paperwork with my dad is that there was this insurance policy he had from World War II that was $10,000. And I'm thinking $10,000 World War II, that was in the 40s. We're now in the 2000s. Like, ka-ching, I can take care of dad. <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe not. No. So, so from the from the Veterans Benefits Administration side, we outside of compensation, which is the piece that everybody knows about, you know, where a, a veteran is compensated for some service connected condition where they were injured or, or aggravated on active duty. Uh, we have benefits that include insurance, as you talked about. We have veterans with life insurance. Uh, we have education benefits. And then we have the benefits, uh, vocational rehab benefits that, you know, for veterans who need to find a different job because their injuries preclude them from doing the job that they were trained to do. And then we have the benefits that I oversee. So as part of ours, we have a pension, which is a needs-based benefit, right? It's based off of the uh, income threshold that's established by Congress. And then we utilize um, the individual's income. And this, this benefit is available to both veterans and survivors. Uh, we use the the income that they have, and then we are able to utilize medical expenses that they've incurred and paid uh, to help reduce that income. Uh, once they get below the thresholds that are established by Congress, uh, we can then grant them the, the benefit. Now, the, the requirement for this is the veteran has to have served at least one time, one day of wartime service. If they served prior to September 7th, 1980, they have to have uh, served at least 90 consecutive days of service. And after that, it was 24, it's been changed to 24 months. And then once we've established that they meet the eligibility requirements, then we look at entitlement. And entitlement is based uh, on their income minus their medical expenses. And then there's also a net worth com component to it. So it's a uh, net worth threshold is $138,000. And in that threshold, we don't include their primary uh, primary home or their car or vehicles or stuff like that. It's, it's things that they could utilize to help maintain their own life. The, the idea behind this program as established by Congress is it's not meant to maintain wealth, right? It's meant to mean help people meet needs, the common needs that they have. Within the program, we also have the ability to grant aid and attendance and housebound, which for our program increases that income threshold. So a veteran, say, who comes in with their income threshold might have to be around $14,500, right, below that. If we add the aid and attendance, we increase to it, it takes up to like 20000 over $20,000. And the aid in attendance is, you know, they have to show that they need uh, assistance with activities of daily living. So feeding themselves, uh, medicating, you know, taking their medication, transferring, things like that are all considered activities of daily living. And then the housebound is that they need assistance being able to move outside of their home. You can get one or the other. You can't be classified for both. We also then have, um, as I said, that's for both veterans and survivors. For survivors, we also have the dependency indemnity compensation program, and that's designed for where a veteran died of a service-connected condition, so it's either primary or secondary related to the service-connected condition, and we grant we would then grant a surviving spouse, say, the dependency indemnity compensation as a result of the loss. So that that comes in about about fourteen hundred and I think it's fifty-seven dollars this year, and it's COLA adjusted, so we'll see an increase in next January. The surviving spouse is somebody who has survived the death of their partner or husband or, or, or spouse, male or female, that has died in the course of some action while serving, correct? No. They, no. No. So they are entitled. So if they if they die, you know, while on active duty, they are entitled to that. And but if they die after service and their cause of death is related to a, a service related condition, right? So you know okay. then then we can grant it to, to that survive the survivor of the veteran. Also, um, the one thing, you know, for the requirement for the survivor, the, they have to have been married to the veteran for at least one year prior to the veteran's death. Right? That's our current. And then we, we also have the 
cohabitation, right? They had to, they had to been together for that period of time. We do realize though that there's some circumstances where they can't be together, so that's that's weighed in. So the fact that they haven't been cohabitating doesn't mean that they they would be restricted. We would just have to make a determination on that. But yes, it's it's for both active on duty. If they die on active duty, we would grant the IC benefits. If they die after service and it's related to a service connected condition, by the way, and for the survivors DIC benefit. Um, they are also eligible to get the aid and attendance or housebound determination, and which would increase the amount of money they get monthly. And then the last benefit that we oversee before I, I kick it over to Scotty and he can tell you that all the great things VHA offers is uh, we have burial benefits. So if the veteran is in receipt of compensation or pension benefits at the time of death or had a claim pending that would have granted, or they die in a VA medical facility, then VA will help offset the cost of their burial. So today, that amount is $300 that we would pay for burial. And then if they're not buried in the state or national cemetery, we could pay up to $827. If they're buried in a national cemetery, we could help offset the cost of transportation. One point of note is that uh, Congress recently passed a bill, January 5th of 2021, and effective January of 2023, the burial payment goes from 300 to 827. It'll match the, uh, the plot payment, and it'll also be become COLA adjustment. Now, if the veterans determine that their cause of death was related to a service-connected condition, we would actually pay $2,000 as a flat rate in those cases to the surviving spouse. And we target the surviving spouse first. If we have evidence of record, we can pay the surviving spouse just upon a notification from the spouse that the veteran passed away with no application. They just call in and, and provide the information that we need, and we would trigger a payment to the surviving spouse based off the information directly. I'm going to stop you there again, because you're talking about burial, which, which is great, and I understand that, getting a little ahead of things. But as long as we're here, my question here is that you mentioned that you would offset the cost of burial for a veteran. This is, it could be an aging veteran, somebody who's retired from the service, just served in wartime, in any kind of cemetery yes. so, situation or, or only a VA cemetery? No. So if, if the veteran is buried in a VA cemetery, the one thing we can't do is pay plot because there's no plot cost incurred, right? Because the VA- it was free for my parents. But, right? Yes. But regardless, requirements are a veteran had to be in receipt of benefits at the time of death or had an application pending or- died in VA medical facility. So it's not for all veterans. It's only for the okay. sheet. The one, the one stipulation we make outside of that is if the veterans remains are unclaimed, we at NVA want to make sure that all of our veterans get a dignified burial. So if the remains are unclaimed, we have the ability to help offset the cost for that to make sure that our veteran is interred in a way that is appropriate for their service. My dear friend of mine, who I've known since kindergarten, her dad passed away Oh, I think it's now about two years ago, but because of COVID, they couldn't do a large gathering to celebrate his life. And so they did a, a graveside cemetery burial, not at a VA cemetery, but in a private cemetery, and had asked that the Veterans Honor Guard be held off till they could do something publicly in a larger setting, which apparently there was a point of confusion. I remember the night before the the celebration of life or the memorial for her dad at the church, the the VA fellows shared that they had actually been at gravesite, 
that they had played taps, they had done everything they were supposed to, it turned out that they lied. <laughs> which wasn't very good. And we got the uh, the local state senator involved. We talked to the VA. We got everything in line. And it went up a certain chain of command. And those guys got caught. <laughs> very sneaky. Thankfully, they got reprimanded because that was not appropriate to happen to anybody. There was only 10 people at the graveside. They knew exactly what was going on. They, they, told, they told the minister who was there to provide us a graveside blessing or, or service that he had lied. It's like, what t- who tells a minister that they lied? I was like, I don't know about that one. But um, ultimately, they played taps. They did the flag ceremony at the church in Long Island. And it was lovely to be able to have that. But it took a chain of command, which we were very thankful for, to get the right things done. And you know, I'm saying this because I was so proud that the VA had actually admitted that a mistake had happened And they were there to make sure that the veteran was properly honored with his family in a larger, more public environment where they hadn't been honored before. So I want to thank you for that one. You know, sometimes we we have to fall on our sword, so to speak. Yeah. And and sorry to hear that that happened. I'm glad that we were able to take the action. It would corrected it. We rectified it. Yep. So but yes, that's not within my purview. That's uh, I understand. For our purposes, our function is to help offset the cost, right? And that's that's the point that we play in that we, we provide monetary benefits to help offset the cost for a veteran's burial and internment. So, you know, in, in that we we will pay for a funeral, we will provide that, or even if the body is cremated or in some other way disposed of, we will we will offset that. We have we have regulations that allow us to help provide that. So there was something else that my father had received and I know there are other friends and family members have received too, that my dad got a small, I call it a pension. I'm not sure what it technically is in the terms of the VA, where he got, I think it was about $200 a month as a benefit for being a, a World War II vet, or maybe because he served over wartime. This was part of something that he received as a benefit for being a, a veteran. What is that called? And is that, does everybody or every veteran get something like that so i without knowing your father's records and without seeing them i I can't really speak it it may have potentially been compensation benefits where he had an injury that was occurred that occurred while duty but there are also other than here yeah the other part about it is states there are different states that have different benefits for veterans so as i said i not having your father's record not being able to look into the the circumstances i i would be just guessing and so every state has a slightly different benefit plan. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? Yes. In fact, um, and I don't have the website readily available, but if you if you go on VA benefits, if you do a search on VA benefits by state, there are multiple websites out there that will tell you what each state offers. You know, there are there are states that don't tax retirement, military retirement pay. There are states that do and or, or only tax a portion of it. So but you'd have to do a web search for that specific to the I'll ask the, the administrators who helped me connect with you, you know, some of those links and we'll put them in the show notes so people have the opportunity to find that for their own family member. Yeah. So Go ahead. That's no, I was going to say that's for, for our benefits. That's where we're at. And I was going to kind of toss it over to Scotty and let him kind of uh, yeah. provide you some insight. So Dr. Scotty, thank you for joining us. I'm interested in learning a little bit about how the medical benefits work for veterans. I knew that one of the things when my my father was setting up his 
plans for later on in life. The one thing was that he wanted to make sure that mom and dad never had to pay for a burial plot, which they didn't. They went into the VA cemetery, which was quite interesting and in making sure that all his paperwork was in, in place. He had his DD-214 ready to go and when that time was, and I knew where it was. And I think the hardest thing on, on that front was deciding what to put on their gravestones. So that was amazing, and the and the service was, was lovely, including the selection of an honor guard. And I, I'm sharing this story because I think it's it's interesting for people to know. My friend could not do the, the gun salute in Long Island in a more populated area. But in Florida, when my parents were buried, they did the gun salute. And, uh, you know, my, my dad had said that he didn't want anything like that. And I, after he had gone, I said, well, the heck with that, Dad. This is our show now. We can do what we want. So <laughs> that's what we did, which was a lot of fun. And I know that other friends have had the horse-drawn wagon and everything up at Arlington, which is a, a whole nother display and show, but it's it's also lovely. This is obviously not your area of, of expertise, I'm, I'm presuming. Is that correct? Yeah, you're correct. That's more on the National Cemetery Administration, but we can uh, always, you know, try our best to, to get that information. So on your side, we're dealing with health care of veterans, and there's a lot that goes into that, including things that crop up over time that may have happened as a result to impact health later on in life. I use my father as an example because that's the one that I've got closest hand and that he was a gunnery officer on a destroyer escort out in the North Atlantic. He was under those big, you know, boom, boom, boom guns all the time. So he got the benefit of hearing aids. Other than that, he was, you know, physically fine from the war, but it took a while for him to get that and, uh, and medications and everything else that he might need. The challenge of working through the system was quite uh, quite frustrating at times. You know, I'm not sure if you were able to help explain how that works or what families can do to get better care for an aging family member in the VA healthcare system. Well, I think when it comes just to overall care, first of all, we encourage people to become enrolled in the VA because it really does allow us to become A, aware of them and B, uh, you know, we can only help those that we're aware need the help. So it's not automatic. They have to actually go through an enrollment process then. If they're wanting to seek medical care in the VA, yes. If they want benefits uh, such as service connection due to injury, illness, or worsening conditions that are service connected, then they can go through the benefits side, Okay. Uh, the VBA, the Veterans Benefits Administration. So, so the medical side usually doesn't get involved with the service connection levels and benefits. Uh, but what we do is do the direct providing of care. And when it comes to aging of veterans, what we want to do many times is really looking at how we're trying to really help veterans age in place Mm -hmm. or remain in their homes as long as possible. So we're really wanting, like to highlight and encourage veterans to open up a dialogue, especially with their assigned primary care provider or the social worker that's assigned to them when they're in the, enrolled in the VA so that they can discuss what are some of the limitations physically that they might have. And that way, we're really wanting to encourage them to find these resources early and not wait until it's a crisis mode, as you know, because it's so much harder to really help someone 
when it is a crisis mode. So we, we, we're expanding many of our programs. Currently, uh, home-based primary care, we're expanding medical foster home, which is another program that we have. What is a medical foster home? Okay, well, medical foster home is kind of an in-between their home and a nursing home. What it is is that a person has volunteered to open their own personal home up to three veterans where they actually live with that person and that person helps provide care to them. And then that way, it's more of a home-like environment. And then when they're doing that, they also are enrolled in VA's home-based primary care, where a VA physician and other staff actually come out to that home and provide them their primary care and many other wraparound services. And the person providing that service in their home is compensated by the the VA? Well, they work out an agreement between the veteran and that person, and the VA has oversight and works with them. So with that particular program, there are some monies that the veteran themselves have to pay for because it does include things like room and board and things like that for having stayed there. But it gives an option, you know, for something between, you know, home and nursing home. So it, it is an option and we're we're expanding a multi-year program of expanding that where it's available at all VA medical centers. And we're also expanding a program called Veteran-Directed Care, where they actually, the local VA, if someone gets enrolled and they meet all their elements of showing that they really need the help with that, kind of help provide it a budget to help them decide who comes in and helps them provide home care. They can hire neighbors or really in areas that may not even have a healthcare agency to come in, but they can work with this outside area-wide agency on aging who helps them manage the money, helps them hire people so that they're not overwhelmed with that. So we're making sure that that's available at all VAs. So we're doing that over a multi-year plan. And we're also expanding the number of home-based primary care. So the overall message is that we're really focusing on the aging in place as best as we can so that veterans, as long as they can safely stay at home, and to integrate that so that we're also just giving people the most options. I wish I'd known about it when my dad was alive. It'll be four years ago, September 11th. So my cousin reminded me at the time that it was Patriot's Day, and he was a patriot for sure. But the biggest challenge that we had with him, although he had his own primary care doctor, if he wanted the services of the VA, which he was enrolled in, physically getting him there was hard at towards the end of his life. So you actually have doctors that will come into the home now. It's, it's home visits like, you know, old days when I was a kid. And another option is even if they get most of their care at the outside, they can still work with social workers at the VA because there's a lot they can do over the phone. Right. And now we're even doing home telehealth visits many times. So especially with COVID and many other reasons, we've gotten better at not requiring people to come in in person. And so he, even if they're not necessarily requiring a home provider to come in, then at least we're trying to make it as easy as possible to at least get the agency and other services aligned for them without them having to physically bring someone into the facility. You know, the other thing is sometimes we got stonewalled and, and I'm not directing it at either one of you personally, but it takes a team to do something well, right? And not every team member pulls their weight as they should. In some cases, you would go there and you'd wait forever and you'd see other veterans sitting there and like, the complaints I heard was just incredible. But when you get to that point, what are the things that we can do as family members to say, okay, guys, 
it's time to to polish this thing up a little bit and move faster or deliver the services so that the veterans or the people, the patients sitting out there don't fall asleep, don't get aggravated, decide to leave because they, you know, they're not getting what they want or the service provider leaves because, you know, they're on the clock and the time is up. What are the things that we can do to really push that through without being horrific, nasty customers ourselves? Well, I think there's a lot that one can do. And before the visit, one can really make an agenda as to what are the important things that you want to cover in that visit is many times helpful so that you can say, what are your top two things that you really want to get covered today in your visit? And before that, if you feel like you're waiting too long, maybe in the lobby, that's when you can check in with the clerk and just say, ask, you know, were there circumstances that may have affected that and how there are any other uh, comforts that they can help provide. But also, if you need to, many times the primary care team is not just the doctor or the nurse practitioner. It's also a nurse. There's also social workers. So they function as a team. So many times that's why we say, especially if you're needing something, is to call in and get even a phone visit with the social worker so that you can cover, again, that agenda item that can be something that they can handle over the phone and save you that trip in the first place. I mean, obviously, if you have a true medical condition that you need someone to listen to your heart or lungs or or something like that, you can go in. But many times you can triage other things that are more questions or if you can have just a consult put in or something like that. So we like to try and make sure that that primary care team is really aware of what's going on. And that's why we tend to funnel everyone back to that person, because if you end up ping-ponging around to too many specialists or something without that primary care provider really understanding what's going on, it makes it more complicated. So It's like having one central point of communication makes life easier for everybody, so you, you're not frustrated yourself. You know, one of the interesting things that I thought, what I knew that the VA offered was prescription medications. And if you are going to a primary care physician outside of the VA, is it possible to still have your prescriptions filled through the VA? Especially they get, I mean, they get expensive. So not everybody's only on one medication at the end of their life. My dad was until last eight to 10 months and it was all of a sudden $1,000 a month. Now trying to get that one particular pill for $1,000 a month at that point of his life through the VA, it was like, oh my gosh. We, uh, we, had, we were told we had six months to get a response. It's like, we don't have six months, you know? So I got a little forward, I'll say. <laughs> they listened to, so I never got through the, I have to say, I admit, you know, publicly, I'll let everybody listening. I was never able to get the prescription through, but there were other pieces of equipment that we needed that we got through very quickly, even though we were told, well, you know, there's a six months requisition list or whatever needed to be done. And I said, uh-uh, I need this here tomorrow. And it got there. Surprise, surprise. But the meds were the hard part. And that's why, again, we tend to have people reach to their primary care team, the social worker, because they can reach out to pharmacy and many times kind of help you find the, the process that your local VA may need to, to either have that outside provider provide either electronically or some other means to get that prescription to the VA and kind of explain the benefits so that you know if there is a, a small copay or if there's not a copay or so usually, again, that the social worker can kind of help lead you so you're not just blindly calling anyone. 
So you can you can actually still work with a, a separate primary, external, private primary care doctor outside of the VA and still get services provided through the VA on the medical front as well, correct? We do have a formulary system. So what you do is, again, that social worker would help you uh, find someone in the pharmacy that can go over and actually discuss with you medication by medication. Because as you know, some you know may not be covered fully or in many plans. So it's everyone's so different. So it's easier for us to really just say, go back to that social worker to help you find the pharmacy person to to help you with that list of medications to see which ones can be covered and if there's a copay. Because every every case is so different that we really try not to oversimplify it because there are uh, some issues that every veteran is a little different in their circumstances. It's interesting that we sort of presume that because a parent was a veteran or somebody who's a veteran and they have these benefits that automatically everything's covered, but it's not. It's like an insurance policy, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... That's the best analogy, right? That's what I've got. Yeah. But then part of that's why you need to just check and find the, the right points of contact within to really explain what the benefits package is and are there a copay and and things like that. So that's why, again, we really tie everyone back to a, a primary person so that they can kind of make sure that, you know, everything's being addressed that you have and, and looking at the larger picture too. I mean, ultimately, you want to provide the best quality of life for somebody that you love and you're taking care of versus being stuck in the middle. Now, there were two different groups that I knew we we dealt with down here for my folks. One was the VA medical center where the doctor was, the hearing aids, where we, you know, asked for beds and whatnot that needed to be done. And then there was another department or facility that we went to that was just sort of, I call it the front office, where Sergeant Pete explained, you know, what to, you know, how to go for the the benefits, what was available, how to work. So they were, they almost worked as two separate units, the medical facility and services providers, and then the the group that just helped explain what you could get, you couldn't get, and, and what was available as well. Is that typical everywhere? Or do they usually work as one unit? I wasn't really sure sometimes where you went left, where you went right, or how does that typically work? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the who exactly that second party was that you were referring to outside of the medical center, but... I think it was like the VA, the, v, the local VA office. Like a clinic? Or... What it was versus the medical office, yeah. Uh, if it's a clinic, you know, sometimes the primary care is provided in a clinic that's not in the main VA medical center. Yeah, this was not a this is not a click. This was just a, like a regular desk office. This is what we need. How do we get it? What's available? You know, what do I do yeah. next? It was really sort of an administrative office. I I called it the VA department as opposed to the doctor's offices where yeah. everything was provided. And, and some of that is overlap with the states as well as veteran service organizations. Okay. So sometimes it, it can seem like it's all extending of one service, but there are multiple kind of avenues of getting assistance. Many times that each state has its own Department of Veterans Affairs, as well as it also has multiple veteran service organizations that are there to help and provide advice and, and help as well. Um, so, so yeah, so the, there's, there's multiple avenues in there, and especially if it's more of a, like a benefit side type question versus a clinical because the medical center tends to, again, our focus will be more on the actual providing of health care. Now, the other thing I know that the, the VA, or at least I, I understand the VA offers, is veterans hospitals. And you also have nursing homes as well. Is that 
correct? Or do they sort of work one in the same? We have a pretty broad spectrum in the sense that we have the VA hospitals that provide acute care, and that's for veterans of all ages and conditions. And then we also provide, again, the home care, which we talked about, where we try to provide both either VA provided or contracted where private agencies at VA that the VA pays to come in. But then there's also the, the nursing homes, which can be, there's multiple ones. There's VA owned ones called VA community living centers. And they tend to be, depending on the focus, but some are more short-term. Like a rehab facility? They might have more of a specific short-term focus versus longer focus care. Many times there's all, all veterans usually and in their state have some options of state veterans homes that are available in most states. Are they nice or are they yucky? Oh, I've, I've been to many and I thought they were very nice. But, uh, I, I had to ask that because I think but, of, uh, everything is green or gray, yeah, right? No, I, I, I've seen some that were just absolutely beautiful. Many of them are very new. So each state has theirs that are run and owned and operated by the state itself that are veterans' homes. And then you have community nursing homes that the VA may provide additional services, like if someone's in a, you know, whether it's private pay or they're under Medicaid or short-term under Medicare. So there's a lot of options. And again, based on that unique individual's needs, and there's some other things that if based on their service connection level, there may be some additional benefits, especially for long-term nursing home care. And that's why the social workers are so important because everyone's so unique in their circumstances. They are the central hub, what it, it sounds like. There's so much that the VA offers that we probably don't even tap into that could be beneficial. I think one of the most valued things, because we kept our folks at home after taking them out of a care facility, and we use the benefits of the VA, but the cost of certain things like a good solid walker that was not flimsy that you might get through Medicare, which is kind of crummy, you know, they fall apart and they're not necessarily great for posture. A bed, you know, a hospital bed, which we used for dad, which was phenomenal. We, We got that support, air mattresses and other things. Incontinent products, which are so expensive for families over time. They were a benefit to to my dad when he needed them, and so I'm I'm grateful that we had that extra support, financial support, because as my mom would say, getting old isn't for sissies. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm curious about is I know the basics that we tapped into, but going to guess there's some pretty unusual benefits that we might not necessarily even know about that you would say we should know about that are available through the VA, what might some of those be? I've been hogging this. I'll let Kevin go. <laughs> and either one of you, Kevin or Scott. So as, as far as in our space, most of the work we do is not with the caregivers. It's geared towards the, the veterans and the beneficiaries. The one thing that we do have is we have a fiduciary program. So within that program, what we look at is if a beneficiary is determined unable to manage their VA funds, right? That's the specific guidance we have. They have to be unable mm-hmm. to manage their VA funds. We would appoint a fiduciary for them. Typically, we work with the, the beneficiary. Uh, we try to, uh, as first target, we try to appoint someone who has a, like a family relationship with it, whether it be a spouse, a son or a daughter. And the goal there is to make sure that the VA funds that are being paid to that beneficiary are used solely to take care of the beneficiary's needs, right? So it's not what we try to avoid is we have, we have some companies out there that are, you know, a little little under the play a little bit outside of the ballpark and and where they are 
try to uh, take advantage of our beneficiaries. So one of the things that we put out, it's on our website, uh, we have news articles that go out about it, is just to be cognizant of, if you're filing for a VA claim, um, you should never pay, right? So if you're filing that initial claim, you should, no one should charge you to file that. Uh, we have entities like veteran service officers who will do that service for free. You can call the 1-800-827-1000 number. Someone will talk you through that. You can walk into a regional office if you're close enough and someone will help you throw out that claim. But you should never have someone charge you to do that. And we have companies out there who tell beneficiaries, we'll get you this benefit. We'll get you this increase. We'll take this much money. Like we'll take a percentage of whatever you're, whatever you get from your boost or whatever. Like the benefit is for the beneficiary. I've seen advertisements for those services. So I, I know what you're talking about. So in the fiduciary program, like we, once we make the determination that the beneficiary can't manage the funds, we will work to appoint a fiduciary. Typically, like I said, our first target is family members or somebody who has a relationship with the veteran. If we can't find that, we would end up with a professional fiduciary. We did take steps to limit the cost to our beneficiaries by regulation. The fiduciary can't charge more than 4%. There are companies out there that charge within states that charge as much as 20%. Ooh. Yeah, we restricted ours to 4% of, of the benefit. And then we provide oversight. We ensure we do things, accounting audits. We do funds under management audits. We do visits to make sure that the fiduciary is taking the responsibility seriously and doing what is best for the beneficiary, that the, the money that they are, the expenditures that are being put out to take care of the veteran, right? So their bills are being paid, their house or rental, whatever is being paid. They have food, they have, you know, they have money that they need to take care of personal needs. That's one that's not really touted a lot, but it's one that we have in place and we take very seriously. So this is not like a guardianship program necessarily. This is purely financial fiduciary that the monies are not being abused. Correct. That they're going directly for the benefit of the veteran for food, for shelter, for health care, or anything else that needs to be taken care of. Correct. So that's terrific. If somebody is not and, and this is predominantly if somebody is not cognitively able to take care of their, their own finances, it sounds like. Yes, and determined by medical evidence. So it's not just, you know, we VA decides there's some medical evidence that supports it. The one other thing that I would like to put out there, just in, I want to make everybody aware, because we know today's environment, the economy and, and the stress, you are a veteran or you know a veteran who's in crisis. We want to let them know about that there, we have a crisis line that's operated 24-7 with caring, knowledgeable representatives who want to help. They can reach that line by just dialing 988 and pressing 1, uh, you know, because we know this, we see stuff about the crisis that veterans are experiencing, and we want to make sure, you know, the VA has functions in place to help assist them, and, and we want them to take advantage of those. So all you need to do is dial 988, no other numbers, to get uh, the VA crisis hotline. Yes, press 1, 988 and press 1 when you get the and press one. Is that, I, I'm, I'm not sure, is that the same number for like the suicide hotline that? So it was actually that that number has been updated. The number of the, the suicide hotline numbers still exist. Um, we've worked to kind of just make it faster. So we've cut it down to it. You know, we've worked with um, different entities to make it a three digit call number and they'll get this. Get Piggyback off of it. There are a number of people who have reached out to me, including family members over time where they see neighbors who are in distress and family is not there to take care of them. They don't know what to do. And you've got an older person who is living in squalor all of a sudden that they never did. So those are the kinds of calls that you need to, to make when you see somebody like that, correct? 
Correct. Our local police forces are not necessarily equipped to handle those situations, but hopefully they know who to call if, in fact, they themselves get those kinds of reports and they reach out to you as well. That's a great service to have. Scotty, is there anything on your side that you think that's unusual that or, or, or different that you're not seeing taken advantage of that more families should be doing? Yeah, I think especially hospice care. I think many times people just don't, uh, especially you're, you're under stress and you've got a lot going on, especially when someone's been diagnosed with a terminal condition or they're definitely at the end of life. Reaching, working through the VA to get hospice care, many times it's done in the home. And what they do is many times they also, if the, any, if there's a medication that's for pain medication or something like that, uh, and it's due to hospice services, then those are covered. Uh, veterans have the, the right to either have the VA pay it or use their Medicare. But we want to make sure that they are aware of that option that the VA really wants can pay for uh, hospice care. If someone's got a terminal condition, less than six months is kind of what they say by by rule. But they can also, you know, they right. give many options. And, and the reason we really propose that is because they, they have services to help the whole family, not just the veteran. And they'll bring in maybe a chaplain. Uh, they can do after bereavement care. So sometimes I don't think everyone's quite aware of taking us up on providing home hospice and those type of services. So that's one that I just like to make sure everyone is aware because, and again, I think back to that, you know, when, when that's happening, it's so stressful that people just don't think they just try to go day to day. So we like to just preemptively let people be aware that this is an important benefit for them. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I didn't realize that you could sign on to hospice through the VA. I'm going to guess that the, the hospice organization that you're assigned would also reach out to the VA if, in fact, you know, versus Medicare, one or the other. I'm an advocate of hospice. I was honestly afraid of them to begin with, not knowing what to expect. And I was very fortunate that a friend of mine whose wife had passed from uh, Alzheimer's once said, do you want to know what this looks like? And so he explained what the passing looked like of his wife which helped me prepare to ask the right questions for hospice. So it's it's not I mean what does death look like? We don't we don't know. I mean it's not something we go through every day, but I was sort of the the lead family member. I'm the oldest daughter and I always had been, so that was kind of what I did for mom and dad. And when hospice came in for dad cuz he passed first, they said, would you like a chaplain? I thought, oh, I don't need a chaplain. I'm fine. You know, everything's fine. Everything's dad. You know, dad's was, dad referred himself as the back pew congregationalist and went to church on Easter and Christmas. And that was about it. But I said, maybe that's a good idea. And there was a chaplain who came in and we talked about my dad and my mom, and he was very kind and gentle to them, sort of non-denominational, which I appreciated because not everybody has that sort of faith-based demeanor all the time. You know, they can be spiritual. And the chaplain asked me, you seem to be holding up all right. Is there anything I can do for you? And I paused and I thought, and I thought I'm good. And I said, no, I think I need somebody to talk to too. And I think for me, that was as a family member, that was the greatest gift that I had at that point in taking care of my dad, that there was somebody who was kind, who understood and had been through this process many times and listened and was a shoulder for me to lean on as well. So uh, I really, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the service of what they, what they did. And they helped afterwards as well with, you know, how do we tell mom she had dementia? So it was, uh, it was a dilemma. Are there other services beyond that 
Scotty, that you think in, in the medical environment that we're missing that we should have? I can think of the home care services to help people as they age. Because as you know, many start having difficulties with activities of daily living. Some of those are gradual and you don't really recognize how much you're having trouble at home or your spouse is having to do so much for you. And then it then only becomes apparent when the spouse gets ill, then the world falls apart. But no one really noticed it because it's been gradual. So I think that conversation, again, being as proactive with the primary care team, the social worker as to how things are going so that we can get that home care in there and prevent things such as burnout by the caregivers and to have a backup plan, even if the spouse is able to currently handle the situation, then we can make sure that they're aware of respite care in case they just have a situation that they have a, need a procedure done or something like that. So so I think, I think people wait too long until it becomes a crisis. And in a crisis, you lose many of those options because you've already burned many of those choices. So I, I think we're really trying to push this where people think of uh, and we're also really wor- expanding our age-friendly healthcare system as an initiative across the VA, which one of the things of that is really asking veterans as to what matters to them. Mm. And not just healthcare, but what are their goals? What do they want to get? And that's so individual. We can't just gauge what's important to me, it's important to the person next to me. So I think a lot of that is we're really trying to get to where we individualize what people want and make sure we know the goals because we can't just assume, you know, not all of us want to run a 10K, you know, <laughs> I've kind of passed that on. Uh, I, I did that, yeah. been there, done that. Yeah, so, <laughs> but I mean, you know, what one person thinks is valuable may not be the next to the next person. So we really want to individualize those. And so we're really implementing the Institute of Healthcare for Improvements, age-friendly concepts in our healthcare settings currently. So it's not just for old vets, it's for the young ones too. No, it's age friendly and it's across because, you know, no matter what your chronological age is, we're all aging to some point. And then especially with veterans, if you've had a service-connected issue or a disability or, or an illness that may have started you down that road a little quicker when it comes to having trouble with some issue with what you find as a quality of life. And I think it's important to have that conversation early. So we're really, really wanting people to think of this aging in place early and not, again, wait until that last minute when the caregiver is just, you know, totally burned out. Then we lose the option. They're fraud. Yep. Got it. You know, the, the one thing that you caught my attention is there's, there's two things. I'd say i hearing there's a kinder, gentler VA that we may not necessarily have known of, about. And we think of military, it's strong and staunch. You're the leaders, you, you know, up to, there you go. One, two, three, four, you're done. Out next, you know, type of thing. But you mentioned respite care. So respite care is available for a family caregiver? Yes, if they're enrolled and the veteran has certain amount of needs with assistance with activities of daily living, they can again check with their primary care team or social worker and there's a certain, there's up to like, I think it's 20 days a year. And then there's also, they can check and see if there's a program called Homemaker Home Health Aid, where they can just have someone come in and essentially sit with the person uh, while the spouse goes and gets errands done or a medical appointment. And there's also programs such as contract adult day health care, where a spouse can have someone uh, have their uh, their spouse or significant other 
uh, stay at a contracted facility just for four hours. I mean, if someone just goes off and is able to go do some of their their needs uh, and quality of time. So, so there's a lot of programs out there that we really want to make sure. And again, if the veterans want them, that, that's what we want to do. It's we want it to be individualized because we can, again, want to find out what are the goals and what matters to each of those veterans. I want to thank you. We're going to wrap things up because, you know, I could probably go on for an, another week on this and I don't want to monopolize your time. But <laughs> they're, they're, the VA, as any government um, managed service, is complicated for us as average citizens to go through. But knowing that this is available and quite frankly, I think one of the, the huge benefits is knowing that there's respite care for a family member is a huge lift off the weight off our shoulders to say we've got a little time to breathe ourselves. So I thank you both for your for your service and for what you've done for us. And I will reach out to the folks who put us together and make sure we have the right links for different ways to get more information about the VA, especially by state, because I didn't realize that it was different from state to state. This has been terrific. If there's anything more that I should I should say or we should do at this point, please let me know. If they say speak now, forever hold your peace. But I think that's the wrong institution. <laughs> no, I just want to thank you for this time and the ability to explain some of the programs. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, uh, same here. So thank you for getting the word out because letting other people know that we do have, you know, one is we are human. We are, we are open and uh, we have a lot of, different opportunities to provide support to, to many of our veterans. And it sounds like a lot has changed over the, the last pandemic years. So the ability to work a little bit more remotely and connect in is, is a real advantage for a lot of people. So thank you. We will have more information on show notes and a background and bio on, on both Kevin and Dr. Scotty. So if you have any questions, let me know and I will get them on over to the powers that be at the VA. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. It's been great to see you. And for everybody else who's listening in, have a great day and we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Caremanity LLC.